Welcome to the NAFSA International Educator Podcast, the official voice of International Educator Magazine, brought to you by NAFSA, Association for International Educators. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Henley, Editor-in-Chief of International Educator Magazine. Welcome to the International Educator Podcast. In this episode, I talked with Edward Alden, who was an author, journalist, and professor, as well as the Bernard L. Schwartz Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Specializing in U.S. economic competitiveness, trade, and immigration policy, Alden is the author of Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy. Given his range of expertise and current position as the Ross Distinguished Visiting Professor at Western Washington University, Alden sees how economics and foreign policy intersect with higher education. I spoke with him about the long-standing bipartisan support for international students in the United States, the country's eroding competitive edge compared with other top destination countries, U.S.-China relations and the implication for international education, and more. Here's our conversation. Historically, how have both political parties supported or opposed international students coming to the United States? How has it become more of a partisan issue lately? This is not a brand new debate. I mean, there's no question that it has become more divisive in the past few years. And this is the first time we've had an administration that that really seems to believe that that foreign students by and large are not a great thing for the United States. There's been general support on the concept that foreign students are a good thing for the United States. But if you go back to 9-11 and its aftermath, which I, which I wrote about in my book, and even before that, going back to the 1990s when there were, uh, it was an unsuccessful attack on the World Trade Center in which a foreign student uh, played a role. There has been concern over foreign students that goes back sometime, recognizing the enormous economic and cultural contributions. Some worry that, you know, some small handful of foreign students could be a security threat. And after 9-11, there was serious consideration of temporarily blocking all student visas. Uh, Diane Feinstein, the Democratic Senator from California, was pushing right after 9-11 for a six-month moratorium on all foreign students coming to the United States. And so there was, for a period of several years after that, um, a kind of growing level of suspicion surrounding foreign students, uh, particularly those from, from Muslim countries, but not exclusively. So, you know, the difference between then and now was you had an administration uh, that generally believed, the Bush administration generally believed foreign students were a good thing. They were worried about the security issues and tried to work that through. And so the blip in terms of foreign student enrollment turned out to be a fairly small one. You saw a bit of a decline after 9-11, but it recovered very quickly. Uh, What we're seeing now, I think, has the potential to do much more serious damage to the United States as, uh, as the world's most attractive location for foreign students. That's a good, um, a great segue into my next question, which is, you know, in international student recruitment, the U.S. has been lo- losing its competitive edge, especially, you know, to Canada, U.K., Australia, New Zealand, and others. Um, can you tell me just a little more about what you think the short-term effects are of, of losing that edge? And then what are some of the longer-term effects? I mean, it's, it's slightly hard to talk about short-term and long-term right now just because of the unprecedented impact of the, of the COVID crisis. I mean, foreign student enrollments are down in Canada, they're down in Australia, they're down in the UK. 
I mean, the pandemic has restricted travel generally. But what you're talking about, I think, is a, is is a um, you know what we've seen in the United States during uh, this administration is a pretty clear message being sent out to foreign students that they're not particularly wanted here and their lives are going to be made difficult by this administration. And that's very different to the message that the Australians are sending out or the Canadians or even the British to a considerable extent. And so I, I think there's no question that has had an effect on new enrollments. You see the, the comparative success of Australia and Canada versus the United States. I mean, there are other issues I think you just have to do with, with cost, which, which are are, are are less a question of, of, of government policy. Um, you know, short term, we'll have to see how, how COVID plays out. Longer term, this is what really concerns me because I think, you know, the United States has done a reasonably good job of rebounding in the past when we've had these situations where, you know, we've sort of temporarily said to foreign students, we're worried about you. Um, you know, the numbers have tended to rebound, maybe not quite as strongly as before, but pretty strongly. I mean, the, the, the quality of U.S. universities, their international brands remain extremely attractive to foreign students. I think the blow this time is going to be a lot deeper. I think we, we've made it very difficult for foreign students, in particular if you look at the tensions between the United States and China. I mean, China is about one-third of the foreign student population in the United States. And, and you know, on top of all the sort of general anti-immigrant stuff this administration has done, on top of all of the restrictions related to the pandemic, you have escalating tensions between the United States and China, um, uh, initiatives that seem to target Chinese students quite directly. So I think we're less likely to see a recovery there than we saw in the past. I think we're more likely to see uh, a steady decline in, in the number of Chinese students in particular. Usually when we talk about competitiveness or U.S. competitiveness in this context, it's about keeping the country as an attractive study destination for international students. Um, what else, though, goes along with that? So in what other ways are we competing with other countries? And how does international education play a role in that? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of two parts of it. You know, one is attracting them to come here and study in the United States, which has benefits for our universities financially, has benefits for our students in the universities in terms of exposing them to people from, from other cultures. It helps the, the research uh, work at universities, foreign students, particularly in, in the sciences and engineering, are a big part of the research workforce at universities. So all of those are, are sort of competitive issues in and of themselves. I mean, I've done a lot of broader research on U.S. economic competitiveness, how the U.S. stacks up against other countries and, and uh, the success of our universities, the high quality of university research is a big part of where the U.S. gains competitive advantage. The second piece, though, is the transition to work, right? If we educate these foreign students in the United States, are they all going to go back home or are some of them going to stay in the United States? And, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with foreign students coming, learning in the United States and going back home. The research shows that that you know, pays benefits over time as well, certainly good for U.S. diplomacy and, and soft power. But, but the, the big benefits come when they stay here in the United States and go to work for U.S. companies or start their own companies. They file patents. They become part of our scientific and technological enterprise. And, the, and the, you know, the evidence on that is absolutely clear that, you know, foreign students who stay and work in the United States provide 
uh, enormous benefits for the U.S. economy. You know, company after company in Silicon Valley founded by uh, foreign students who came here and then stayed. And, uh, and the stay rates for these students are still pretty high. You know, if you look particularly kind of master's, Ph.D. students in the, in the sciences, um, a very high percentage of them have been staying and making their careers in, in the United States. This is a great place to, to work and make a life, particularly if you're a talented scientist or, or engineer. So if we cut off that pipeline at the beginning, it obviously does some harm to the universities and to that enterprise, but it also has knock-on effects down the road with, with people who don't come and stay and don't go to work for U.S. companies and don't become part of our our corporate scientific and technological enterprise here in the U.S. You mentioned on a recent episode of the Council on Foreign Relations podcast that international students' contributions to the United States are poorly understood. Why do you think that is, and how can we increase that understanding? You know, I think part of the challenge is that that I don't think most people kind of understand the dynamic nature of economies. You know, most people just, you know, they want to get a job, right? They want to graduate from whatever program they're part of, you know, whether high school or community college or university or, or beyond, and, and they want to get a job. And so they're thinking about who are my competitors for these jobs. And so it's fairly easy to tell a story, and the Trump administration tells this story repeatedly, that, you know, foreign students come to American universities are competition, right? You know, they're, they're competing for places in the universities. They're competing for jobs uh, after, uh, after they graduate. And, and I think that's a kind of story that a lot of people sort of intuitively understand. And in some cases, there's no question it's true, particularly in some entry-level tech jobs. I think the harder story to tell is the the economy, the American economy more than most is in this constant process of creative destruction, right? Uh, new companies are rising, old ones are falling, new technologies are being created that create positions we haven't even thought of before. You know, you look at the explosion of demand for cybersecurity experts or what Zoom has done to the way we work. And so if you have an innovative and dynamic economy and and foreign students have been a big part of our innovation and dynamism that's constantly going to create new and attractive opportunities for american students it's a more complicated story to tell and and i think to some extent you know i'm a little bit critical of the you know of the advocates for foreign students because i think they focused less on that story than they have on the narrow financial contributions to universities i mean the story you hear a lot more often is well they're paying out of state tuition and and that's good for the universities. And, and that's true, but I actually think it's the less important part of the story than the impact on the job market and, and on the innovation of our companies. Global challenges, whether climate change, a pandemic, or economic crises, increasingly require global cooperation. Uh, from an economic standpoint, what is the role that international education has to play in creating these global solutions? I, I would I would like to be more optimistic than I am. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of potential there. I think educational exchanges are incredibly important. I mean, at, at uh, my university here, Western Washington University, in the economics and business department, we strongly encourage students to go and study abroad, and, and you can see at an individual level uh, what that does. And you'd like to think, okay, well, this is going to lead to more enlightened generations of leadership that will cooperate better on big global problems. I mean, at the moment, unfortunately, the world is moving in the other direction, right? I think 
you know, if you look at the COVID crisis, and I've, I've written about this recently, rather than sort of encouraging the world to come together to find solutions, we've really retreated much more into our national bubbles. I mean, you know, what are, what, what are the tools here that we've been using? Well, border and travel restrictions are a big part of it. You know, I mean, a lot of places have kept out foreign students for exactly that reason, because we're worried about people bringing the virus from other places. You've seen this um, new nationalism in terms of supply chains. While we don't want to be dependent on the Chinese or the Indians or anybody else for medicines or, or protective equipment. So we've seen a, you know, kind of bring all that back home drive. Um, if you look at what's happening in vaccine development, uh, there are not that many. I mean, there's been some, you know, US, UK cooperatives, some others, but it's not a global effort. It's been very much a national effort. Um, and there's a lot of concern over how the vaccine is going to be distributed after it's, it's developed. So so, you know, I fear at the moment the sort of positive benefits of, of mixing of cultures that we've seen through international education is kind of being, uh, being overshadowed by really the more nationalist responses to the pandemic. Is this nationalistic response a product of governments that are currently in power in different countries? Or do you think it would be different if that wasn't the case? Yeah, that's, I mean, that is, that is a great big question that I, I probably do not have a good answer to. I, I mean, I think to some extent history does move in cycles, right? And, you know, we've seen this in, in U.S. history, right? I mean, the, the previous era of, of globalization, which involved, you know, movement of people and ideas and goods, you know, kind of topped out uh, at the start of the First World War. And we moved after the war into a, a period where we turned much more into ourselves as a country. You know, it was commonly referred to as the isolationist period in U.S. history. And there are elements of that, I think, again, uh, coming uh, this time, a lot of it from the United States, which was, you know, after all, uh, the most important architect of the post-Second World War economic and political order that, that, you know, that created a world in which foreign students could be free to study uh, all across uh, the world. And, and that, was a, you know, that was a world that was built under U.S. leadership. And, and we as a country, uh, particularly in the last four years, have been moving in a different direction. Um, you know, the bigger question is, would it be possible to reverse that under different leadership? I think to some extent, yes. But I also think there are big forces at play you know the u.s china rivalry i think is 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 going to be a difficult one to manage you know whoever the the next u.s president is so i think you know some of some of the some of this you know the forces that are sort of pulling us away from uh the globalization of the last few decades i think those are going to stay with us whoever uh, is in charge Given the direction we've been moving in the last four years, uh, what further actions related to international students, if any, do you anticipate if the president is reelected? And if Vice President Biden is elected, do you anticipate course correcting in this area? I mean, I, you know, I think if, if President Trump is reelected, you know, we can uh, anticipate a whole series of further measures that will make the U.S. less attractive for immigrants and less attractive for foreign students. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think that the Trump administration's position is, you know, they want to go to zero. They just want to see smaller numbers. I think they, you know, continue to like to 
attract the best and the brightest from overseas, just not in such great numbers. And I'm not sure that that's a circle that they can, you know, that they can square, right? I think if you, if you send out the sort of harsh messages that this administration has been sending out and you take this sort of regulatory action, I think it's going to be pretty hard to reverse course on that in any significant way. So I think if, you know, if, if uh, Trump is reelected, I think we're going to see a doubling down on the current approach. And I think that is going to have lasting negative impacts uh, for the U.S. ability to attract foreign students. Um, a Biden administration, I think, would pursue uh, a different sort of course. But, but it, it'll, you know, if, if things do change, it's probably going to take a while. They're going to have a huge agenda that they're going to inherit of things that they want to do. They're going to be coming to office in the midst of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. Um, the government budget situation is in tatters. Um, there are going to be real, real challenges in, in turning direction. When you think of public universities, for example, you know, they're going to be facing, I think, enormous financial challenges. Uh, for for the next several years at least and probably beyond. So I think a Biden administration would have a very different philosophy, very different ideology on these issues, um, but I think they're going to face a lot of practical obstacles to, to changing direction in any sort of uh, timely fashion. You mentioned the tension in U.S.-China relations and the effect on international education and exchange. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this current dynamic and its implications? There's a whole another thing going on here beyond just the general immigration restrictions, the general restrictions on foreign students. And that's the, that's the escalating cold war between the United States and China, particularly where it regards science and, and technology. Um, I mean, even administrations that were more sympathetic to foreign students have always kind of walked a fine line with, with, with Chinese, um, science and engineering students. Um, you know, there's been an effort. Yes, we want to open our universities to them. Yes, we want them to come and study. Yes, we would like them to stay. But there's also concern if they're learning things in American universities that have uh, direct applicability to Chinese military capabilities. Um, you know, to what extent are we concerned about that? Uh, what are the tools that the government has to try to identify people that it needs to be worried about to try to restrict programs of study if necessary. That's been on the agenda for a long time. I mean, it was even, you know, it was a, it was a subject of discussion after 9-11, but it's really ramped up over the last couple of years. I mean, we're in the midst of a full-blown U.S.-China technology war with the United States trying to strangle Huawei, which is, you know, China's flagship uh, uh, telecommunications equipment, smartphone maker. Uh, the administration has uh, enacted various regulations that, uh, that have the potential to cut off access for a lot of Chinese students. Um, you know, if, if you have a, a Chinese student who studied at a university in China that's affiliated with the People's Liberation Army there, and an awful lot of them are, um, many of those are going to be barred from coming to do graduate work here in the United States. So I think, unfortunately, the, the deteriorating relationship between the United States and China and the concern um, in, in the U.S., and this is across both parties, that China poses a growing security threat, I think that is going to make uh, the situation for Chinese students here in the United States harder and harder. 
I think fewer are going to come and I think there are going to be more restrictions on the ones who come. Um, and that, you know, because Chinese students are such an important part of the foreign student contingent here, um, I think that's going to have a big impact, even if we have an administration that is generally uh, warmer and more welcoming than the current one. All those discussions have really ramped up really just in the last four or five months. Um, mm -hmm. But I think this is going to continue. I mean, I think, unfortunately, um, the U.S.-China uh, relationship is, is uh, on a downward trajectory at the moment. And, and I think even with a change of administration, that's, you know, there will be changes in approach. But, but I, I think the U.S. and China have moved from a period of sort of, um, you know, somewhat uneasy cooperation into a, into a period of, uh, of more direct conflict. So I think that's going to have a lot of implications for all sorts of things, including universities here in the U.S. Yeah. That's it for this episode of the International Educator Podcast. Thanks for listening and check out our new issue at nasa.org slash IE. Thank you for joining us for this edition of NAFSA International Educator Podcast. Please visit nafsa.org to read more from International Educator Magazine and to join us as a member of NAFSA. Together we can make a better world.